Welcome back to the Break Magazine podcast. This episode of the podcast is one for me that's really exciting. It's been a long time coming and we are talking about suspension. Now, anybody that knows me on a personal level knows that for me, suspension is a really big deal when it comes to a motorcycle's performance. It affects so much of how a bike handles and so on. And I'm, while not being a stickler for a certain way of having your suspension, I like it when suspension works for me rather than against me. Our guest this week is, uh, our guest this week is a chap called Chris Hockey. He runs a suspension tuning service here in the UK called Dr. Shocks. And for me, he is one of the leading enduro suspension tuners in the country. He produces fantastic results and he quite often does it from stock suspension by revalving and changing oil heights and getting the springs and the balance of a bike right all the way through to occasionally making custom parts to improve how suspension performs in general. And the things I've seen him do over the years to my own bikes and to other people's bikes are nothing short of dramatic improvements in how the bike handles and performs, the confidence it gives you and so on. His knowledge base is immense. He's been doing it for 25 years for his own race bikes, for his teammates' race bikes and so on. And we go through that in the podcast. We also talk about developing and improving your own ability to make your suspension better, where you should start, some small improvements you can make if you have simple suspension on your adventure bike, all the way through to what he's changing and why he's changing it on much more complicated setups. The difference between a standard enduro bike fork and a really, really expensive fork like a WP Explore Pro. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I really enjoyed recording it. Um, the ending is cut a little bit short because Chris had to go, but it was fantastic. It was really good of him to give us the time to sit down and talk through this subject. Um, yeah, without further ado, I will let you listen to Chris's dulcet, north, not northern, to his, I'll just let Chris take over. I don't really know where I was going with that. Yeah, thank you very much. I'll see you at the end. To give some context to like you and your background, how did you first get involved in suspension and tuning suspension? Um, when I first started doing enduro, switching from motocross, rocked up on a on a motocross bike. It wasn't too bad around East Anglia where it was quite rough and sandy. But then at my first event in Wales, obviously pissed down for the whole duration. Um, lots of roots stones and yeah just literally bounced off everything and figured i needed to uh sort my suspension out um cool, way back then in the in the 90s there wasn't uh social media it was a case of getting the old charles and motocross news or the you know dirt bike magazine or whatever and uh, looking at for the little adverts and scrolling through every advert trying to find someone that said they did enduro suspension and there wasn't one. There wasn't one person saying they did enduro suspension. All of them said motocross. I struggled. Um, I had a couple of people that were sort of motocross, uh, you know, suspension guys, and the bike was still, yeah, bouncing off everything. Um, so ended up getting some information off a company abroad that uh, I noticed a, a fork sticker on someone's uh, forks that was like doing the World Enduro Championship. Thought, right, that's. I need to speak to because they're like, I mean, he was winning the world championship. 
about the same bike as me. Um, and then I actually got some settings. We have email then. I don't even know if we had email then. No, I think yes. I think possibly facts. An uh, <laughs> actual fact. I think it was a fax. I think it was a fax. Genuinely. <laughs> so I got these settings, and obviously I've always spun up my own bikes and set up my own forks and stuff. So got these settings, and as I was taking the sort of shim stack apart, I could um, you know, see the huge, huge difference in the shims, and was quite keen to try it out on the track and. It was way too soft for what I had, you know, in the sand and stuff. So, but then when I went to try it out on the grass and the sticks and the stones, it was just fucking out. It was just a different, yeah, totally different bike, you know. It made more difference than, you know, the flywheel and the mooses and anything else I'd done. It was just a transformation. I could come into a corner with roots going across it and literally, you know, hold my line and, yeah, gave me confidence to, you know, literally, like, competitive you know literally i think my first welsh event i outed out you know and then my second welsh event i won it you know so it was uh that was the difference literally turned me from a donkey to a racehorse <laughs> I, I was about to say that it was a similar experience like my first forestry welsh in, uh, british enduro i outed out as well but then it was uh, there was no point where i ever won one so yeah. <laughs> all got quick and but, didn't stop being a yeah no there was a slight it was a, it was a hellhole uh, uh the first welsh one uh i think only nine people finished so it was particularly hard i finished but i was over an hour late but um the second one was quite dry it was still quite wet in places it's still a grassy test but yeah the, the fact was it was um yeah literally yeah i didn't lose any time and i actually won i won my class but um so, yeah, that was a, a turning point. And then it was on the yams. So I had in front of me a, a, sh- you know, a, a shim stack for a YZ. I had a shim stack for a, for a WR, which was way too soft even for, for Welsh racing. And then I had this shim stack that um, I'd bought. Um, and kind of you could see the differences. And then me being a rider, I could feel the differences. So that I, I saw the pattern, you know, uh, and, and I could feel how the pattern kind of gave me those changes, you know. Uh, it was just really, really interested me. Uh, and I actually, you know, could tweak it a little bit and, and make it a bit harder at the bottom and, you know, softer at the top and, you know, and with, with you know, oil heights and springs and all the different things and kind of started, you know, tuning it myself, really. And then, um, yeah, I guess, you know, become a quite a high-level rider. And then my, my mates... With my teammates, you know, would have a go on my bike and go, oh, fucking hell, that's, you know, that's trick. You know, can you, can you have a go on mine? And then, you know, I ended up doing, you know, all my teammates and other teams. And, you know, it was um, kind of how it started, really, yeah. And uh, uh, I called myself Enduro Tech because there was no one, not one person at that time um, saying that they did Enduro Suspension. So, yeah, it was... Uh, racing was my main thing I, I uh, just purely did that while I was in the country because I was going abroad a lot racing and that just gave me the money to go and sort of fund my racing I was sponsored as well but I had to give them a job up to um, to go racing all the time and uh, that kind of funded me so if I was in the country I was doing suspension and practicing and if I was away I wasn't earning any money I was just racing but that, um, that kind of started it really uh, and that pattern that I could see in um, what I'd done with mine, you know, I could kind of transfer it 
to Suzuki, Honda, you know, KTM, all the different types. There were slightly different forks, but uh, in a very similar sort of format, I suppose, really. Um, yeah, then ended up, like, uh, I didn't do my own shocks at that time. I was just playing with the clickers and straight away then I had to go and buy the tools to do the do the shocks and, yeah, just kind of evolved really quickly then. Um, um, the Dr. Shocks thing came where I was forever getting people who did supermoto or motocross saying, oh, you know, do you only do enduro suspension because of the name? So a few people started nicknaming me Dr. Shocks, just a bit of a nickname, just a bit of a fun thing, and uh, decided to make it Dr. Shocks because it was far more generic. So I could have uh, people stop saying, do you do motocross, do you do supermoto, do you do rally? You know, so that was that was how it started, really. So I think one of the things that I've always found really interesting about you is that, like, I've watched you do this a few times, and obviously I, we don't spend that much time together, but, I've, you know, you've done a few of my old man's rally bikes, and every bike you've ever done for me has been significantly better than stock and even when I've had suspension done by other people for other things I've never liked it as much as what you've done but one of the things I find really interesting that you've managed to do is is you manage to take products that are maybe not quite fit for purpose and tweak them in ways that are quite creative to come out with something really good from like like I remember you uh on when my dad rode Dakar on a G450X And you took the fork apart and you put some weird internals in it and you did some stuff and it was longer. And But the, the end result was a fork that was really good out of a fork that was really bad, like the stock G450X. I'm yeah. sure you're, uh, you know, you sponsored a guy that was riding one. It, w- it was not a good fork in stock trim. No. It was harsh and horrible and I don't know what else. It was just, I, yeah, no one ever got on with it. And yet there was this rally bike and all of a sudden it was like, wow, the, shocks, the fork's really nice on that. Like it works. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that comes back round to like understanding what the end goal is with suspension. So for you, what what are you ultimately trying to achieve when you you take a bike and you improve it with the suspension? Yeah, well, that was that was kind of a, I suppose a stroke stroke of luck for your dad in a way because they were I think from memory they were Mazokis back then, and I was uh, riding for Husqvarna and they had Mazokis on them, and again I had to create my own sort of uh, shim stack if you like and tested it tested it tested it and i would i'd go up the track sometimes i'd get it completely wrong i'd be like oh this is terrible and you'd just go back and, and you know change this change that change the preload some some folks like preload some don't and you kind of learn and uh yeah and straight away when i took apart your dad's i think yeah that bike was probably 200 kilos and the valve in in it would have been way too soft for me on a 125 sort of thing so you know i knew then it was quite easy to just uh, go massively in the other direction yeah, again just the experience and what i felt which i suppose is a big uh the big uh gain that i had you know actually riding so it wasn't just a case of uh, buying a setting and going that's what Mikey says is good and that works it was kind of like putting a setting in going to the track realizing it was terrible going back changing it going to the track oh that's a bit better oh that's a bit too hard now coming back and yeah creating something that I personally ride on a really rough track and know that works so that's kind of why yes it, it kind of worked that way I suppose me and my track were my were my dyno 
Um, mm. But um, for me, the most important thing is to have the uh, valve in a certain way for the discipline. So motocross is different to enduro, and you know, enduro is different to supermoto. So they're they're kind of you know, there's a, a similar stack. Uh, say for or setting, you know, for supermoto, that doesn't change much for individual supermoto riders, but it does uh, depend on their bike, depend on the rider. But for that sport, it's similar, and the same with motocross, and then the same with enduro. But uh, the balance is hugely, hugely important. I think more than a lot of people appreciate the uh, between the front, the, between and the, the rear, front and the rear. That. Yeah, so. The, um, there's a good example just a couple of days ago um, we've been going through all our school bikes at the moment like preparing them ready for the you know, the season and uh, one of my school bikes has been recently raced by someone quite light so it had a, a shock on it valve for enduro with a really really light spring spring for like a 10 and a half stone rider and the forks are in bits and I wanted to ride um, I didn't have time to put the forks together and there was a set of 450 motocross forks on the rack from another school bike which was in bits and um, I was like oh, I'll just put them in it'll be fine you know I just want to ride um, and the thing was like a chopper it was like really hard and high at the front and really soft and low at the back and I rode round and it was dangerous so like, the front was washing out and I nearly killed myself I nearly came in after a lap and I thought no 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 I'll just, just ride and literally I nearly had a massive crash and so I came in and I've got to sort this out but obviously I couldn't change anything I was just there you know with minimal tools so um, I looked at the sag and uh, the sag was a bit low so I just put more than I needed on what I would normally have so jacked the back up quite a lot I made the shock quite firm firmer than i would normally make it and then made the preload as less as it as less as it could be on the front and made the clickers as soft as it could possibly be so completely sort of you know unbalanced it to balance it if you know what i mean um and uh yeah went out and it was a different bike you know by by making the shock harder and higher it made the forks feel much softer um it just uh, yeah, completely changed the sort of aperture of the bike hugely and made it quite rideable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if the shock, if sorry, if one end is soft and one end is hard, regardless of what end, it's a real pig to ride and probably quite dangerous. Uh, if you know, well, and I suppose that affects even just the uh, hugely the corner, well, and yeah, your you front end wash out because they yeah, got a ball tire on it. Or, yeah. yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't ride at rail a rut or hold a tight line or you know you get kicked about on the bumps it's uh yeah it's huge so uh yeah i mean sometimes i think if the bike's too hard it doesn't matter that much if it's too hard front and rear you know you can balance it out a bit and you can still have a, a bit of a harsh ride but you can ride sort of safely and the same if it's too soft you know as long as it's too soft front and rear and balanced you can still ride it properly you might have to back off a little bit on some big bumps and jumps but you can still uh, ride it but if it's unbalanced that's where you know you'll get the feeling of or, or crashing when you shouldn't have crashed you know the front end washing out or you can't hold a rut or you know so yeah i think the balance a lot of people they will straight away go with the clickers and start fucking around with the clickers where for me i think the first point of call if you think there's something wrong with your bike is the sag you gotta try and um get the sag right get the bike balanced so it kind of goes up and down together and then you'll be able to um 
you'll be on the right track then. And so for, for people that are like uh, a little bit less experienced with what that feels like when you're changing SAG, is there a way where you can kind of test it in the workshop to, to know that they're going up and down together? There is ish. Um, obviously, um, yeah, by pushing down at the front of the seat, you know, um, and, and it should go up and down together. But then if the forks haven't been serviced, um, the forks won't go up and down at all because the, there'll be stiction there. So that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, if the, you know, most bikes have a, a sort of a, what would you call it? A, uh, a manufacturer's recommendation, you know, in the manual, for example, like, you know, 25 to 35 mil static sag or, you know, 35 to 45 or something like that, for example, all bikes are slightly different. Um, it needs to be in that ballpark and then um, it's kind of, you know, uh, semi-balanced. But then some riders uh, prefer to um, have the back a little bit higher. They feel a bit more confident when the back's a bit higher. Some riders prefer the back a bit lower and obviously if the rider doesn't know that you know it's a bit difficult um sometimes you can see you know for me i can see uh whether some some riders for example like to steer the bike a little bit with the back end you know or spend a lot of time on the back wheel um some riders like to you know have all their weight over the over the handlebars and you know rely a lot on you know using the front wheel to turn everywhere so uh different riders have slightly different uh you know, comfort settings, if you like. But generally, if the bike is uh, in its uh, manufactured, um, recommended uh, uh, SAG setting, it should, shouldn't should be far off, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's an interesting point you made as well about, about the SAG, um, because like, especially in adventure bikes, like obviously we do a lot with adventure bikes. Um, that, that whole conversation is a little bit, like it's not even at the point of like 1980s dirt bikes yet. Like nobody, no adventure bike company or like adventure bike comes with a recommended sag point. Like they just don't talk about it. And obviously you've got, most of them have got like a, uh, an easy adjust preload adjuster on the back. So it's really easy to change that and to work towards that balance even on the fly. Yeah. But because I don't know if it's because like most people aren't tweaking their suspension or adventure bikes yet, or it's only just starting to happen since like the KTM 790 and the Tenere started to come out and get more popular. Yeah. Um, but also compared to dirt bikes, a lot of them have got quite reductive suspension systems, you know, like the KTM's basically got the same as your EXE has now. It's the same fork and I think the same shock even. Right. Um, but they valved it crazy stiff because obviously it's a 200 kilo bike like it feels probably stiffer than their enduro bikes do even even though it's you know an adventure bike um so if we come like back to talking about a more basic suspension so like a lot of entry-level adventure bikes and this is where i get the most questions about suspension from really it's not ktm 790 owners or 10 or a 700 owners those people they just Google it and they're quite happy to go and find someone and do something about it. But you get people who ride CRF 250Ls or even more basic bikes where they have like a damper rod fork from like a 1980s motocross yeah. bike. With, with a really, really basic level fork like that, especially in adventure bikes, I don't think this happens so much in dirt bikes. Like I can't remember the last time someone... I, I heard of someone buying or recommending to buy progressive springs and put thicker oil in as like 
a really good tuning option. So I did a project bike last year with a V-Strom 650, which comes with a non-adjustable, super basic, right way up fork. Like this is like, it, you know, it is a 1980s fork, basically. It doesn't look any yeah. different really to the fork that came on a DR Big in 88. Yeah. It's just got a rubber seal over the outside when they didn't yeah. used to have. Um, and so with that, that's a really common modification is people buy progressive well, frames and they just run thicker oil. It's easy for the end user to fit, isn't it? Or easy for the, you know, the bike shop. Yeah. That, you know, doesn't know about so what happens so, when you do that to a fork? Yeah, so you make the fork like, um, progressively um, firmer. So with it being a progressive spring, it's still a little bit um, supple at the top and, and it um, makes it firmer through the stroke, which is similar to what you do with the shim stack. Obviously, without the the bike shop or the consumer having to get it revalved or pissed about of his own shims. Um, and then obviously, uh, like you said, some of these forks don't have a shim stack. They just have like a, uh, for in layman's terms, a, you know, a lump of metal with holes in, <laughs> similar to an old BSA. And uh, so you just put thicker <laughs> oil in and, it, and it, you know, it's similar to adjusting the shim stack, I suppose. You know, you, you add shims to make the it harder for the, um, oil to go through the, the piston and out of the shims so you uh, you're, you're doing a similar thing but it's very obviously a very basic and affordable and e you know easy for anyone to do way of doing it um, you know back in the old days with the with the old BSAs and stuff people used to just that's how they made their forks harder they just put a thicker oil in and the thicker the oil the harder the mm -hmm. harder the suspension but obviously that would make it firm all the way through there was no progression you know but obviously with enduro and I suppose rally you do actually need now we're traveling much faster over over the terrain you do actually want a bit of suppleness at the top you know um for your arms and blisters but also for confidence you don't want to be deflecting off everything you know it's hard to you know keep it wide open when you're bouncing off everything so having it nice and supple at the top can uh, give you yeah, more control, more, more plushness, more confidence. Um, and at the same time, you don't want it to bottom out when you hit big holes or, or even bigger holes, um, which is obviously what you do when you revalve. You know, you, you, you make it so that it's nice and plush at the top and a bit firm for the big hits. And I guess in a way, that's what a progressive spring does to a certain extent. Um, and uh, yeah, like you said, some of these forks don't have an option to revalve without, you know, lots of big, extensive modifications uh yeah i've seen some guys you know they just take their take the handlebars off and undo the fork tops and then you know get a pick and pick out the forks and drop in the other ones and and sort of bob's your uncle and it and it improves them and it makes them happy so it's a it's, it is a modification that works to a certain extent but they're not obviously you know uh, you know flying around motocross tracks or you know multi-lapper enduros where the bumps are really you know um, big and close together and, and roots and ruts, you know, it's a, it is a different terrain they're riding on. So um, most of them perhaps don't need that anyway. Yeah, to totally. Uh, I suppose, especially if you're buying a bike like a V-Strom, like obviously yeah, you're not exactly. that in adventure bike world, but a V-Strom is very much just a street bike that you're yeah. kind of trying, to, just needs to, trying be, to make okay on just dirt needs roads. Firm, doesn't it, um, without being too firm at the top. Mm. I mean, you know, like you were saying about the adventure bikes as well, that you ride them differently as well. You know, you're not up over the tank, you know, you know and you're not then going down a bumpy straight with your ass over the back mudguard, are you? you? You're pretty much restricted to one sort of seating position or 
standing position, aren't you? So the bike has to be. Yeah, it's a lot more. Yeah, just kind of approach. Uh, sure. You can't really play with the sack, you know. Like I was saying about some riders have the bike a bit lower at the back if they're like those in the sand or whatever, you know. And you have the bike a bit maybe higher at the back to make it turn sharp on flat, you know, grassy turns. You don't really have that with a with a big bike because you can't maneuver yourself over the you know front and back of the bike anyway so that that, that whole balancing thing and uh or unbalancing you know the bike to to make it better or worse in certain conditions you don't do that with an adventure bike just keep it balanced you know mm-hmm. so if you if you've got a bike with like like obviously i talked about the v-shram they're having like the most basic fork that you can have essentially if you if you take something more with a with a more advanced fork in theory so like a lot of the the mid-spec adventure bikes now and it's different when you go to the high spec because they've just started making everything electronic um but with like a mid-spec bike like an africa twin or bmw's 850 gs in theory those two bikes that's not a good comparison so an africa twin has like a fully adjustable fork so it's compression rebound and preload But the standard performance is, how would I describe it? It's like a really trail-friendly setup. Like, it's like riding a carpet. So if you ride down the road, you don't feel anything. There's no feedback. It's really, like, mushy almost. But then, obviously, you know when you ride off-road that that's not desirable as a characteristic. But the other problem you get is the rebound so quick and the compression so quick. It upsets the balance of the bike all the time at slow speed. So you hit a small bump. And it goes down and comes back and then they're big and heavy and tall. So it makes it, it makes it hard to ride. How, 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 how far can you take a fork like that in terms of making it good just with shim stacks? Like, can you completely transform it or is it something where you're still like, yeah, oh, I, I mean, think you, you probably could better. get it to a, a, a good level internally, but it would be changing, you know, kind of everything. But again, you know, they're not, um, they're kind of doing the right thing in a way because the majority of the people that buy Africa Twins um, probably only ride them on the road, don't they? Um, uh, or, or the odd fire road, you know? So they need to be soft and supple, um, you know, similar to like an R1 or whatever, you know, if you've got, a, if you've got one of these race bike, you know, road bikes, they're, they're fine riding normally within speed restrictions. As soon as you start you know, really racing it around the road or a track, you'll suddenly find it's a bit like an EXE. It's way, way, way too soft. So that's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you'd uh, you'd either um, chop it all out and, you know, if you wanted to do a big race on it, you know, like Dakar or something like that, not that you would, you would be um, changing the forks in the shop. But if they had, you know, uh, you know a, a mid-speed, uh, you know, uh, pistons and base valves and stuff like that, obviously that you could make the... The compression harder, the rebound harder, you know, the springs harder, and, and all that. But uh, um, I think all these companies are, are making the bikes kind of correctly for the people that are actually buying them. It's just like you or I, mm-hmm. you know, if we're if we're going to go and try and race one, you know, in the dirt, and now suddenly you find that it's not uh, ready to race. Uh, it's uh, it's ready to bimble yeah. around the roads and the, and the fire tracks, isn't it? Mm. yeah no totally. especially i think you're you're kind of alluding to like enduro bikes there yeah, as well, well right like yeah, all road, uh, road e- exe uh, comes adventure you know uh, enduro they're, they're kind of they're, they're they make them for the 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 majority of the people that buy them aren't they um i think the majority of the well, people this is, that buy this is one of those interesting things twins, they like it because it looks like a dirt bike bike but 
you know, they don't. I know loads and loads of people with the, with the GS. 12s you know they've never taken them off road in their life you know we, we you know that they ride yeah. two your dads and they rent one and take it off road but none of them actually ride them off road do they well it's quite interesting because i think in the uk that is the case but like a lot of our a lot of our viewership is in the states and That's it's true. quite unbelievable but, how yeah, many people over there Australia ride them off road yeah, i've been true. quite um and, and it, it's kind of interesting because in the last couple of years, especially, and I think KTM have caused this a little bit with the 790. When you ride the 790R off-road, it's a it's it's completely different to an EXC in terms of how the suspension feels. So like with an EXC, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about my bike. Like it, it's pretty easy for a good rider to find the limit, right? And you you if you push hard, you get there and you're like, it feels terrifying now. But the 790R has got the opposite problem. Like the, you, there's obviously, there's nuances to it where you're like, okay, that could be better. It's not particularly sensitive. But in terms of like the peak performance of how hard you can hit things on a bike that big, yeah. Like, unless you took it to a motocross track, when you're adventure riding it, I haven't found that limit. Like, I can ride it faster and faster and faster. And I get to a point where I'm like, I don't know where the limit of this is. And now I'm going so fast on this huge bike. I don't want to go this fast. And it's really interesting because that 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 bike seems to have sold quite well because of that characteristic. Like, enough dudes are riding it in the desert or they just want a bike that when they hit something it doesn't terrify them. Whereas like you pointed out, most adventure bikes, if you, they're designed for the core customer and if you fall outside that, it doesn't work. Whereas that bike's core customer is basically like me, but I want to go and ride an adventure bike. Do you know? Um, and so it's quite, it's quite interesting that as a result of that, especially when the Tenere 700 came out, it's a bit cheaper and loads of off-road dudes, especially in the States, I think, and uh, and and the other kind of, english speaking outlier countries they want they want to use those bikes like long distance enduro bikes and they want their suspension to work really yeah. well um and so it's kind of brought up this conversation of what the best aftermarket suspension direction is like do you just go and get a revalve or do you buy something like a race tech gold valve like they're making gold valve kits for those and obviously i you're i think a bit more experienced with this stuff because you've also sold uh plug and play kits i suppose i'll call them for suspension what what's the how, how much performance difference is there with with like a really good revalve versus something like a race tech gold valve versus something like the is it del soggio kits yeah. that you've done what what what's the performance difference between those kind of things and then something like a cone valve which is obviously two and a half grand for the forks it all depends on what's in the fork um, to start with. So let's say you've got a set of open cartridge forks. The old WP OC, as we call it, open cartridge, which was, what, 2001 to 2016, um, somewhere mm -hmm. around whoa, 03, 04, they went from 43 to 48, but basically inside they were the same. Now they had base valves, mid valves. Um, so they had pistons in both forks in the middle, pistons in both forks at the bottom. They had rebound adjusters on both forks at the top and then compression adjusters on both forks at the bottom. So you could revalve them, you know, as soft as you wanted and as hard as you wanted. It didn't matter what sport you were doing. You could make them suit anything, supermoto, anything, you know, with, with springs, preload and shims. 
Um, there wasn't any need to buy, you know, a gold valve kit or a Dosogio kit because they had all the bits in them. You know what I mean? Just, you just needed to know what you were doing with the shims and the springs and the preload and the oil. Um, obviously, the gold valve thing is handy for people, shops and, and people that don't know how to valve because they could basically just buy it in a packet pre-done. Um, and I guess... It's probably easier for companies. And that's basically what a gold valve kit well, is, is it? It's just a shim stack and a yeah, different yeah, piston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just some instructions. And a, but what they would do is, I suppose it's not going to be that um, de- um, desirable for someone to buy just a bunch of shims. So they, they created valve, you know, like pistons, you know, anodized gold or whatever. And yeah, they might have a um, nicer flow, you know, through the piston or whatever. But to be fair, it was just creating a different you know oil flow making it harder or softer which you can do with shims so i think the main thing really is the shim the shim stack you know through the whole fork on both legs and, and having the um the the pistons you know all four pistons in both legs and the adjustability at the top and the bottom um that's the key obviously i think the you know dosogio and all the uh the recent uh, companies are bringing out kits, uh, which are a must for some of the newer ones. Because, like you said, they they seem to have, you know, um, bits missing almost. You know, they have just adjustability uh, in, you know, the, uh, the top of one leg and the top of the other leg, or, um, you know, um, no mid valve in in one leg. And so then by having, well, by valving just shimming those doesn't really it makes them better like i've done with yours but it doesn't actually you know there's a limit to what you can do with them because um you haven't got sort of all the bits you need to make them really good in the forks sense um and then of course i suppose it's down to price so you can like with you you know we, we you didn't want to you know buy these extra pistons and stuff like that so so it's just a case of shimming it um if you want to go that extra bit more you can pay for parts i.e uh, uh, pistons and stuff and then they'll probably be a bit better still um and then if you really want to get better still technology has evolved now so that there's twin chamber um closed cartridge uh, cartridges which is essentially like a, a shock absorber um that you can put in your fork so obviously having one of those in each leg is i think you know as, as good as it gets um so, uh, but yeah, you're going from, you know, 130 quid for a revalve to, you know, 350 quid for a, a kit to 1500 quid to three and a half grand for, a, you know, a, a, a closed cartridge kit. Um, most people, probably 85% of the people that buy enduro bikes don't need a closed cartridge kit because um, they're just, you know, green laning or, or riding at a very... Um, low speed level so um, like I say the um, Explore forks um, are great for the you know majority of the people that buy the the bikes with those in it's only the small percentage of the people that actually race them on you know real uh, real high speed on real rough ground that need something better um, like a a cone valve or a KYB or or an upgrade kit So in in terms of uh what the 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 
best of the best is i mean i think you're in quite a fortunate position over the last kind of 15 years that you've helped a lot of riders on different teams you've done a lot of magazine work working with all pretty much testing all the bikes a lot of the time and then also testing a lot of the suspension like i remember your bike a few years ago you had like a factory kyb shock on there which i've you know outside of a motocross paddock i'd never seen before and then so where do you think the best brands are and why do you think they are the best? Uh, for me, you can't beat um, Japanese uh, engineering, can you? Like in terms of quality of metal um, and sort of their advanced technology. So um, uh, there was a time where lots of people started experimenting with air forks and you know springs in one side. For me, they, they weren't as comfortable um, as just the uh, the closed cartridge fork with the spring in each leg. For me, no matter what I've done to any fork, whether it be an air fork or a spring in one leg fork or uh, twin chamber, open chamber, the, the plushest ride, the most progressive, beautiful feeling I've ever had out of uh, a bike has had a closed cartridge system, you know, uh, in both legs. Um, and to be fair, um, all the companies that make the closed cartridge system are, are very good. You got the closed cartridge WP that was actually stock on a lot of the motocross bikes and some of the cross country bikes from like 2000 and I can't remember now 2012. That, uh, that's the the SXS fork when it, it was like, SXS. I think my dad and then it bike. was yeah that's yeah. it. And then it was actually called the just the CC fork closed cartridge fork had a little bladder in the top mm-hmm. that was an amazing amazing amazingly good fork i don't know why they stopped it maybe, maybe again to cut costs i don't know or um if you didn't have a if you had a set of closed cartridge forks you certainly wouldn't need to buy a set of cone valves because in my opinion they're as good if not better um so maybe they needed to i don't know lessen the quality of the standard fork to sell more cone valves i don't know but um the cone valve is, is a great port again closed cartridge works really really well but it's obviously got a, a hefty price tag on it and especially when you're spending nearly 10 grand on a bike to start with you know spending three and a half grand then extra on a set of forks and shock is you know if you're buying it you know an acro and blah 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 you, you know if you're buying everything which people at that level probably don't but you know, you're probably reaching close to thirteen, fourteen thousand pounds on a dirt bike, which is ridiculous, isn't it? I remember when my brand new dirt bike cost, you know, three grand, um, and it had <laughs> it had uh, perfectly good forks. And you're definitely older than me. Well, it was only about ninety-nine. Um, but um, yeah, uh, so yeah, a closed cartridge fork with, um, you know, a closed cartridge in both forks with compression and rebound adjusters on both forks at the top and the bottom and springs in both forks. That's, you know, about 48 mil in diameter. They were like quite narrow to start with. And then they went up to about 50 and then 49, but I think around 48, 50, 48, 49 mil, um, stanchion with a, with a closed cartridge set for your discipline, whether it be enduro rally or motocross. Uh, and you're kind of like, you know, speed, if you like, you're, um, your ability um, is uh, the most, yeah, the most 
plushest uh, ride you're you're going to get. I think um, most shocks I think are all adjustable because um, it's kind of like a, you know the closed cartridge thing. A shock is a you know closed cartridge and it's um, quite easy really to um, to valve. You don't really need any 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 upgrade kit on a shock. You know you can buy fancy shocks, um, but I think to be fair. Most shocks can be valved. Um, you can buy bladder kits and stuff to make them a little bit plusher um, and maybe reliable. But um, yeah, I think uh, most most people could get their sh- standard shock revalved um, and um, get some sort of cartridge fork or cartridge kit for their existing forks. And that's about as good as they'd need it, I think. Right. So with a, with adventure bikes, obviously a little bit different to dirt bikes. Quite often the shocks are really reductive in terms of like the technology. They're pretty basic. So quite often the most, I would say, apart from the KTM that you get is just rebound adjustment. Is that something where you're better off? Because like buying a more adjustable rear shock is actually really cheap. Like you can buy a Hyper Pro rear shock set for your weight and your theoretical riding for like 450 quid fully adjustable high speed low speed rebound springs done is that something that's like a good investment in your adventure bike or is it something where you're like uh maybe just get it rebound yeah i just can't imagine a lot of adventure riders um adjusting you know their shock that much uh you know, again, you know, having it balanced, so having the correct spring on it for whatever they're doing, whether they're doing some competitions or, you know, doing a, you know, a ride with lots of luggage or whatever, you know, having the bike balanced and the correct spring on it is, uh, I think I, I can only imagine even if they bought one of these shocks with all that adjustability, they probably wouldn't adjust it much, you know, it's kind of, but, um, accessories is a huge thing isn't it with bikes especially adventure bikes so um yeah like yeah i can't imagine it being hugely advantageous not unless you were doing some racing on the bike you know but again you wouldn't you know you really race one would you you know you've got the big bike rallies and stuff but um yeah Fair enough. No, it's the kind of answer that you, you need in that situation because yeah. even, do you know, it's a really good point. Like I've ridden a few adventure bikes now with with like quote unquote pretty trick suspension and, and almost a little bit um, apart from that 790, I, I didn't ride it with the cone valves and the, the, the not, it's not tracks anymore, is it? Whatever yeah. they're kind of explore pro shock yeah. is. I, I didn't ride that. My old man rode it and he kind of came back and went, yeah, it's really good. Like the limit's not the suspension yeah. anymore. And and when I've ridden those bikes in the past, when you take an adventure bike and you give it like really well valved, good suspension, all that I've run into, and I'm sure there's a balance with this, but all I've run into is I just like, oh, now the limit is the tires or now the limit is the fact that I don't want to ride any faster. Do you know? I don't need to play with the clickers because the the bike's working good. Like it's holding up enough that then I just, I'm a, that's how I feel about it. But I'm obviously, I, like, I'm in a position, you'd be surprised with, with racing adventure bikes. Like, that is becoming a thing. Um, and I, I personally don't get it because I don't want to ride wide open on a 250 kilo bike, personally. 
I want to not be underneath that when it goes yeah. wrong. Um, but do, do you know, I, I get that some people are into it, uh, but I, I always just find that as soon as I've, and the one thing, yeah, as soon as I've done that, I've, I, you just, like I say, you reach a limit where the frame doesn't feel like it's, it's capable of taking the speed that you can now go because the suspension's yeah. really stiff. The tires don't have any grip left because they're not dirt bike tires and you're putting too much weight through them. Yeah. And then I don't want to find out where the limit is. I think the other thing that uh, is quite interesting with this, where was I going with this? I had a really good point and it's like floated out of my brain. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's one of, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that are, with, with the 790, the one thing that really stood out, and I think is why a lot of people like the GS, not everyone does obviously, but a lot of people do, is that because the setup that you have with that weird telelever fork, or the setup being so stiff compared to other adventure bikes on the 790, even though they're tall and they're heavy, when you slow everything down loads, you end up with a bike that doesn't wallow at slow speed, which makes it much easier to ride. Yeah. So like the 790 in terms of being manageable, even though it's like still a big bike, it is really good. So like when you're in a tricky situation, even if it's just like a car park on the side of a hill, because when you change the balance point the suspension doesn't squidge and that change the yeah. balance it makes slow speed stuff on it way easier and i think a lot of people are looking for that as much as anything do you know they just want to feel a bit more comfortable when they hit yeah. a bump they want to feel a bit more comfortable even in the yeah. car park do you know and I, it's that that's where i think that suspension tuning is going to start to come more and more in adventure bikes because and and i think it's better now with the africa twin but when you ride like the last generation one they did one with extra tall suspension yeah. it was like the touring version it had like 250 mil travel nearly but it was super soft and then the tank is really high on the bike it's big tank like 30 liters when you ride that it's like the oh no so the seat height was 900 mil so it's the same as a dirt bike but then it weighs 250 yeah. kilos and it, it felt huge, man. Like even when you rode, like my old man rode it. And when he was turning around in a trail, he looked like he was Bambi on ice. Yeah. You know, he looked terrified of it. And he's pretty good at this stuff. So um, it, it was kind of interesting. Then straight away, I was like, well, this is really hard to ride because it's just too yeah. soft. Like it's so, it's fine on a motorway. If you hit a speed bump, lovely. You, if you try to turn it around in a car park, you probably get, I mean, with, I suppose, adventure bikes, that you probably get a similar thing to what we used to get with enduro bikes, not so much now. Um, but uh, some bikes, for example, even even from one manufacturer, um, you know, like the 252 stroke might uh, supposedly be set up for the, you know, 75 to 85 kilo rider. But actually, um, you know, it was it was more set up standard for a 14 stone rider. So a lot of the guys, you know, who are like, say, 11 stone were thinking, oh, wow, this is terrible. You know, it's too hard. But the spring it says in the manual, it's for me. Um, and, uh, you know, after, again, you know, extensive testing at the track and stuff, you think, well, hang on a minute, you know, scrap what it says in the manual. That's that's wrong. This, this bike's actually set up for a 14 stone guy. So to make it comfortable for the guys that, it says it's good for we had to you know respring re it um and then on the other end you know it was it, some bikes stock were way too soft for you know the sort of 11 stone rider um and different brands would get it slightly wrong with within their 
brand range, you know, just on the capacities. That was an example of uh, the old Italian Husqvarna WR250, you know, the spring on the back it was supposedly all right for a 75 to 80 kilo rider. You couldn't even get the right sag on it. It was more like for a 14 stone rider. So, um, but what I'm saying is that you might have that a little bit with adventure bikes now, you know, some, some of them are probably okay for the 100 kilo dude. Um, and then, you know, the dude buys it who's 70 kilos and it's like, what? You know, he's probably bouncing off cat's eyes and fucking white lines in the road. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you've probably got a bit of that as well, you know. Um, some of them are super, super squidgy, you know, like an old, I don't know, a you know, CCM or something. And, you know, <laughs> um, you know, some of them are, uh, are firmer. So um, my experience in adventure bikes isn't uh, as, as extensive as enduro bikes. You know, I, I could. I could say straight away, you know, if, if someone said, oh, I've got this bike on an enduro bike and I'm, I weigh this much, I'd be able to tell them whether they felt it was too hard or too soft before they told me. But with an uh, adventure bike, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. But I'm guessing that that is definitely a case, you know. Um, that's, a really good, that's a really good point. So I suppose my next question then is if someone sat at home and they listen to this and they're like, okay, I feel like my... 10 or 700 is way too soft. It feels like blancmange. Yeah. Where, how do you, what do you, what's your process when you start with a new bike and you haven't ridden it before of getting the suspension to a really good point? So like you, you obviously go sag first. Yeah. Making you sure it's balanced. Obviously, you know, like looking in the manual, making sure it's not just by chance come, come out of the factory, you know, jacked up you know with zero sag or or on the other end you know really sagging at the back um a huge thing you want to do um it's different if you're racing but like a, a you know, normal riding um the, the bike will always become better to a certain extent over time especially the the mm -hmm. japanese ones you know because the all the bearings and all the linkages and all the shocks are you know, very good quality and the tolerances are really tight. So, um, you know, the, the, the thing will feel quite firm and stiff to start with. And once it supples up, you know, similar to the gearbox and everything else, you know, it's all tight. And, and once uh, you've done a few hours on it, it actually beds in and it, it might come to you a bit. And then, you know, you can just make sure the sag's right. And if it is uh, feeling too hard, then the easiest thing to do is to just get the clickers, if there is any, and go as soft as it will go. And um, if um, obviously if it's feeling too hard for you, and then if if it still feels too hard, and you've made it as soft as it can go externally, um, and you know you and it's and it's bedded in, um, you know there may be something that you can do, whether it's springs or valving or whatever, to to make it a more comfortable ride. Um, and exactly the same the other way, you know, if you get on it and it's like blamange. Um, and it's um, and you've made it as hard as it will go, and you've jacked the back up a little bit more than you even should, and it's still like blamange. Then um, yeah, maybe look at your own weight and what what it's recommended. And even if it looks like you recommend, it's, it's the right springs are recommended. You might need to, you know, do some research and, and put some heavier springs, and you might just be riding it a little bit too hard for for its purpose or whatever, and have to upgrade it. Or like like I said, it, it might be a, just a trait of that brand or that model within the brand and they've actually 
brought them out all a bit too soft. I mean, each year on the Enduro and motocross bikes, they'll always slightly tweak them because the feedback they've had is they're all too soft or they're all too hard, you know. So each each year, you know, shocks have a slightly different valve setting or a slightly different spring rate or a slightly different linkage ratio or um, to try and improve it, you know, based on the feedback they get. And that's obviously something that you get with the um, adventure bikes. I think the event, adventure bikes aren't new, are they? But they're, they're kind of, they're... Their popularity is like growing, isn't it? So they're um, mm. they're going to be um, you know uh, making some big steps. I think each each year. I think where you know enduro bikes have you know kind of been quite um, I don't know advanced for quite a while, haven't they? You know, like um, like motocross bikes advanced, you know, through the eighties and nineties, and then the enduro bikes more. Th- you know, like a, a Nigeria, a four-stroke enduro bike, for example, in the in the nineties was very, very primitive, wasn't it? Um, um, <laughs> yeah. So you pro- you're probably getting yep. a bit of that with, you know, some of the adventure bikes now. Um, and no, I think you've totally, totally nailed that, really, because we've seen it just in the last two years that manufacturers have decided, have got to a point where they're like, okay, now people are asking for more specific categories from their adventure bike like we've got people that ride to france on holiday maybe they do a gravel road and then you've got people who are like oh dude i'm trying to ride like single track and enduro stuff but i'm doing it on a big bike because i want to ride down the motorway at the end and it not be horrendous you know so you've got those splits where ktm have got an s version and an r version and the tenere 700 is like quite clearly more off-road yeah. than anything Yamaha have ever built before and so yeah. on. So I think you've kind of but also like with that as well. Right you know, this, I think suspension is quite, um, um, it has to be uh, set for a, for a, for a purpose. Um, so like uh, use the analogy of motocross and enduro. One of the most common things I get is I've got an enduro bike, but I want it set for motocross and enduro. And it's like, well, you can't really you have one or the other, you know, like it's not so bad if they're like a real beginner because they're not going to be like launching all the massive jumps. So you can probably valve the, you know, the stock enduro suspension a bit firmer and you'll be okay with enduro and motocross, but like a, a top level rider, you know, a, an enduro, a, a proper enduro setup, you know, proper traditional enduro wales grass and roots and rocks you know a full-on motocross track is going to be too soft if it wasn't it'd be set wrong um and i bet you've got a bit of that with with these big you know 200 kilo fucking 100 whatever mile an hour adventure bikes you know if you're scratching around the alps <laughs> on it you know you, you need a proper firm you know setup that's not going to fucking you know drop in the stroke and high side you off the fucking alps cliff um so therefore um you know, bimbling off down, you know, the, the stony track, um, you know, have, asking both of those things out of one bike is probably asking a bit much, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think I think the future for adventure bikes is electronic suspension because, um, you know, just by, you know, the BMW stuff is amazing, isn't it? And even their electric, you know, brakes, I think, is amazing. Um, but uh, being able to just, you know, touch a button on the dash and and, you know, make it, kind of super soft you know for the stones and stuff you know because a a 200 kilo bike 
needs to be firm when you're pushing on, doesn't it? You know, you can't be hammering mm. in the corners at 120 with blancmange suspension because it's literally going to spit you off, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, or even even slower. And at the same sure, yeah. in the same time, you know, 60 mile an hour down a dirt track with, you know, road racing suspension is going to kick you off as well. So, uh, ask for people asking too much, you know, for two different setups out of one bike is the age old thing, isn't it? You know, you can't you can't do motocross on a trials bike, can you? Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, or vice <laughs> yeah. versa. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic point. No, it, yeah. And I think, you, you know, you touched on it there. One of the other things that I love that BMW did is, I don't know if you know they've done this, but uh, I think about three years ago, they came up with this thing called auto sag. So as you pull away, when you first turn it on, it measures how much weight is on the bike and it sets the front and rear suspension to the right amount of preload. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think so if, it, it, so electronic suspension is going to be, I think, you know, That'll probably start coming in, in motocross and enduro as well. But obviously, you've got issues of weight, you know, with wiring and batteries and blah, blah, blah. But, um, and obviously, you know, water and mud and shit. But, um, no, I mean, I, I remember teaching at your dad's in about 03 on the uh, first GSs where they had the um, ABS, electric ABS. And we used to go trail yeah. ride and go down some real probably you know bits of the track we shouldn't really you should only be able to go down on an enduro bikes but for a laugh we'd go down some real gnarly climbs and um the abs would cut in um and then all of a sudden it would it would let go and you had a 240 <laughs> kilo bike on a vertical muddy slope and all of a sudden the brakes would like literally um you know come back on or you know the, uh, undo themselves or whatever it was a death trap it was just because you hit a rock it stopped you from going off a cliff but the uh the, the adventure bikes now the the electric brakes are amazing aren't they you just apply a little bit of front yeah. brake you don't even need to use the, the rear brake because um it, it puts a little bit of rear brake on for you exactly the same amount as what you would have if you put your you know your foot on the rear it just does it for you which is um it's insane yeah. I, I think it's really really cool but um yeah that's obviously the future and the same with um with suspension no doubt especially for endure um adventure stuff yeah you'd be able to just probably preset your you know how much luggage you've got and whether you've got a pillion and whether you want to ride on a stony track or a sandy track or a, or a main road and it'll probably just yeah a touch of a button give you pretty much what you want absolutely well you cannot you can almost do that now with a gs and the ducati's got a system like that but it's not as good for sure um because they're using a more traditional fork i think the telelever bmw's weird suspension designs yeah. kind of help it works, with that, though, a bit, it? For that on the, for on the that, ducati they struggle think, what the fuck is that monstrosity on the bike why haven't they got a set of forks <laughs> but because it's such a heavy bike it does work perfect, yeah. isn't it? a normal set of forks wouldn't work yeah. on that type of bike so you have to like yeah well you have to fight you have to hard and make it work you know, yeah you have to like know it's there but um no i think mm. uh, i think the, the gs 1200 is a fucking amazing bike i really do yeah well like you say it shouldn't work they put a swing arm yeah, in front of yeah, it yeah but, but no, it does it, work it, it. no one knows why yeah, you don't yeah. want the front tuck in do you on a 240 kilo bike it's like but yeah. again this is the same sort of thing you don't you ride it differently to a dirt bike you don't you stand don't you and you sit but you don't fucking get your balls on the tank and, and put your, your, your ass over the rear mudguard, do you? It's like, you just, you just don't do that. It's, you don't have to so that it doesn't need those conventional suspension systems. 
So speaking of that, have you seen um, have you seen Paul Tarres? Uh, yeah, yeah. On his Tenere, he's a freak, and he's a freak of nature. There's not many people on earth like that, is there? <laughs> so we did um, we did a podcast last year with uh, with Chris yeah. Birch and talking about like getting into dirt bikes and that process. And I asked him about it. I was like, "Have you seen it?" And he's like, "Yeah, well, obviously I've seen it." And I was like, "What do you think?" And he was like, "Not in a million years. Like I wouldn't even I wouldn't even dream yeah. of it. It's just it's too far out there." Yeah, no, it's quite, quite, play. Yeah, that quite is, interesting. Uh, yeah incredibly brave and incredibly talented and incredibly strong, incredibly long legs. <laughs> yeah, strong. Yeah. There's not it's many strong people as that an ox, can do that, me, for sure. sure. But, uh, yeah. So um, there's another one worth looking at as well for uh, for anyone listening to this as well. He's a, uh, I'll find his name now. He's, um, he's a young, I think he's Spanish and he's doing the same thing on an Africa twin, but he's clearly not like a, he's not like a trials rider like Paul was, or at least he doesn't look like it. Um, but yeah, he's doing it on an Africa twin and he's like a motocrosser that looks like he's figured out how to ride over massive rocks on this adventure bike. It's proper impressive. I'll send you a link to it afterwards and I'll put it in the in the description. Or whatever. Yeah, it's really, yeah, man, he's unbelievable. When you see him do it, because he's like, Paul Tarras is obviously like, he's like, what, 6'2", he's jacked, he's super strong yeah. um, and like obviously one of the best trials you sort of motorbike riders on the planet. And then there's this Spanish kid who looks like he's like 5'8", He's super young. He's really good at motocross. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he, I think he rides for Honda in Spain. So he's not like, he's obviously really good, yeah. but yeah, out of nowhere, he's suddenly doing the same yeah, thing yeah. on an Africa twin, which is like a much bigger bike yeah. as well. Pretty, pretty unusual. No, it mm. is good. Uh, Sweet good to man. Watch. Well, um, yeah, not for me. But definitely. I can't. Yeah. I, can't. <laughs> I nearly crashed. Me, I test rode one of the big uh, KTM uh adventure bikes and uh got to a traffic lights and nearly crashed it because i couldn't put my feet to the floor <laughs> <laughs> i think you and about uh half the rest of the world uh, feel the same yeah. about that <laughs> um his name's you you might you might know who he is i've just found him on instagram now his name is uh mirabet mirabet yeah no i haven't no. uh He's two-time Spanish champion, oh. I think, but in like in motocross, maybe. Yeah, I'll send you a link anyway, and I'll put Probably it. Be in doing Dakar in a couple of years, like, Yeah, for <laughs> sure he will. I mean, he only he only looks like he's about. I mean, I, I don't really have a right to say this, but he looks like he's about yeah. seven. <laughs> um, but young. yeah, sweet man, this has been um, this has been a cool. pleasure. Cheers, yeah, that's bud. cool, man. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, mate. Bye bye. Cheers, man.